Well, my text from the Bible for this Easter reflection is mainly one verse. It was a verse statement written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Corinth, the city in Greece, and this is what he wrote. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. First Corinthians, we call this book, chapter 15. This is the last verse, verse 58. Paul wrote, therefore, my beloved brethren or my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. My aim in this Easter message is very simple. To encourage us as Christians not to quit. Not to give up. Not to lose heart. Not to grow weary. Not to sit on the sidelines of the Christian life distracted by a thousand amusements but to remain steadfast, to press on and to abound in the work of the Lord because Christ is risen. That's my message in one sentence. Now I confess that this message, this verse is personal also for me. I have lived on this verse and others like it, especially these past months and years. When the temptation to quit comes, kind of throw in the tile, either on the church or on ministry or even the Christian life. When that feeling that this work is not worth it, that it's vain that we're not doing any good. This verse is a lifeline. And so I want it to serve that way for all of us on this Easter morning. If you have followed Christ for any length of time, you know that it is difficult. It's not easy. Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not easy. It's not easy in our battle with sin. It is filled with disappointments and sorrows, hurt and betrayal, suffering and loss. And it can feel at times futile. And we ask, is it worth it? Is all this, is it worth it? Are we doing any good at all? Maybe you are here and you have suffered loss. Maybe you have experienced disappointment, unmet expectations, unmet dreams. Maybe you have been hurt by fellow Christians, by the church. 
or maybe you've been laboring for Christ and you just you don't see any result. You don't see any fruit in your life. You battle and you see no change. Even our church, these past couple years, we have witnessed a few of our very beloved missionary families whom we have loved and invested in and sent and cared for have to come home off the field even this week because of conflict or unhealth amongst Christians. Is it worth it? Is all of that worth it? Is it vain? Is it doing anything? So Paul's word to us on this Easter is your toil, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what he says. It's not in vain. How can he say that? How can he be so sure, so confident that it's not in vain? Because Christ is risen. This verse, verse 58, is a one-verse conclusion to 57 verses on the resurrection. (laughs) Therefore, do you see the first word of that verse? Therefore, he's drawing a conclusion from everything he has just said in the 57 verses prior. Therefore, that is knowing this, in light of all of this, Because of this, what I have just said, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in this work, knowing that it's not in vain in the Lord. So this this one verse exhortation to us on this Easter is grounded in a massive, far-reaching foundation, namely the resurrection of Jesus And our certain resurrection like his. What effect does that have today? Well, this is the effect. This is the practical effect of this great truth of Easter that we are celebrating this morning. So in order for us to feel the weight of the therefore that comes at the end of this chapter. To feel the glorious Reality that's underneath this exhortation. Let me just briefly here, just step us back through, just in an overview kind of way, what Paul said before he got to verse 58. Because that's what he grounds it in. So here's the quick, try to be quick here, overview of 1 Corinthians 15. This whole chapter is on the resurrection. Why, why would Paul, he's the apostle writing, at the end of his letter write an entire chapter on the resurrection. Well, in many ways, it serves as the climax of the letter as a whole. Resurrection is the end 
and the goal of God's renewed humanity. This is where the whole story of the Bible is going, and it connects to many things Paul has already said in this letter about this Christian life, and so he's giving the culmination here in chapter 15. So that's certainly one reason he goes here, but also it seems that there are those in the church at Corinth who don't believe that there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead. They claim to be Christians, believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that there will be an actual resurrection. Now, we don't know all the background, but they are likely influenced by this kind of Greek dualism that says the physical, the body is evil, and the height of spirituality is to get rid of the physical and just be spiritual somehow. So maybe believing some kind of spiritual afterlife. The idea of bodily resurrection was inconceivable, philosophically impossible in some of their minds. And so Paul here, as he culminates this letter and the whole purpose of God, has to correct these wrong notions. So what is chapter 15 about? Paul gives, here's one line of it, the necessity and nature of the resurrection. That's what he's arguing for here. The necessity and the nature of the resurrection. He unfolds it in five movements. Let me give them to you. Just give you the heading. We don't have time to read all this. I encourage you to read it. Maybe on this Easter afternoon, go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15. It is a tremendous chapter. But here are the five movements that get us to our verse. Number one, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel message. It's where he starts. Back in verse 1, he says, I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which also you stand. That's what we just sang. The gospel in which we stand. He said, I, this is this good news that I have made known to you, verse 2, by which you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And there's that word again. In vain. You've believed this. Now hold fast to it. If you don't, it'll be vain. Then it'll be vain. If you don't hold fast to this truth. That's how he starts with hold fast so that you don't believe in vain. For I, then he just gives the gospel. I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There it is. Died, buried, raised. And what he wants to highlight is the centrality of the resurrection in this gospel message. And so he goes on to say that Christ appeared. He appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He appeared to James and he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely, he appeared to me, he says. For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He appeared to Paul, Paul, who was the enemy of Christ, who tried to kill Christians, tried to stamp out the name of Christ. He said he appeared to me, transformed me. This is the heart of our message. He says, whether it's I or they, so we preach, you believe. This is what you believed. And at the heart of this gospel message is the resurrection. That's the first movement. Second, the catastrophic consequences of denying the bodily resurrection. 
as some of them are doing. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. There's that word again. Do you want to know what's vain? If Christ isn't raised. So he says, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, all of this is vain. Quite a statement. Your faith is useless. It's vain. It's empty. That's a vain lie. If Christ is still in the grave, all of this is vain. He says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It's a synonym. It's worthless. It's of no value. You're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. There only awaits judgment if Christ is still in the grave. Not only is it vain, but we are foolish. All of this is foolish. If Christ isn't raised. So much for those, even today, even in churches, who want to claim that it doesn't really matter whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. It's just the inspiration he gives you. Not according to Paul. Faith is not about some inspiring, just some fleeting hope. It's about Christ coming out of the grave. And if he's still in the grave, it's all useless. Let's go home. It's vain. Third movement, the significance of Christ's resurrection. So now he gets to the heart of it. After showing the consequences if Christ hadn't been raised, then he just says it, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ has, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. He gives the significance of Christ's resurrection. Paul, Paul gives really the grand sweep of all of history. The grand sweep from Adam and the creation to the culmination, the final kingdom. And at the center of that whole sweep of history is the resurrection of Jesus. It all hinges on his resurrection. It is the key, the linchpin. And it's the culmination of God's entire redemptive plan. That's the significance of the resurrection. And he says, it's the first fruits of our resurrection. Why is it significant? It guarantees our resurrection. We will be like him. His death, resurrection, guarantees our resurrection. He's the first of that kind, the first fruits of the resurrection. So he gives the significance. All those who are in Christ will be raised. Fourth, the fourth Big movement here. Paul gives the nature of the bodily resurrection in answer to philosophical objections. Now he's going to get to it. He's talked about the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. What would happen if Christ hadn't been raised? 
the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Now he's turning to us. What about our resurrection? What about the nature of resurrection? Because that's what some in Corinth are objecting to. So he says in verse 35, but some will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now, that's not an honest question. That's a mocking question. They're mocking the notion of bodily resurrection. Remember, for them, it's philosophically inconceivable. People don't rise from the dead. Really, physical bodies rising from the dead, how does that go with God's plan in God's kingdom? So Paul answers in this section. We can't read it all, but Paul says, you fool. God can fashion a body however he wants, right? And then he gives an analogy of a seed, like a seed you put in the ground, a seed of wheat or corn or something like that. And the seed, there's the body, and it dies, and then it sprouts forth this transformation, this plant. There's a continuity between the seed and the plant, and there's a discontinuity. The plant is transformed, you might say, from the seed. The seed dies and what comes out of the plant. He's relating that to the resurrection. And he says God has made all kinds of bodies, different kinds of bodies, celestial bodies and animal bodies. Don't assume the resurrected body is the same in every sense to your current body. There's a continuity and there's a discontinuity. There's a transformation. Just look at one part of this answer where he describes the resurrected body, the nature of it. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It's sown. That is in the grave. It dies a perishable body. And it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a transformation that takes place at resurrection. A new body. Yes, it's physical. Yes, it's connected. And yet it's transformed. Imperishable. Glorious. That is, honored. You will not be ashamed in any way of that body. Powerful. Not subject to decay. Not subject to death. And spiritual body. That is, it's the result of the Spirit's work. It's the vessel for the Spirit's life. It is perfectly suited for this eternal kingdom. And he goes back to Adam again, said, right now we're in the image of that first man. And he's thinking of his fallenness. We're perishable. But look at what he says in verse 49. And just as we are born the image of the earthly, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, that is the risen Christ. We shall be made in the image of the risen, glorified Christ. That's your future. You understand? That's we're being conformed to his image. Our body this res will be like his. Risen, glorified. But for that to happen, Paul says, there must be a resurrection. So that's his last, fifth, final movement there. <clears throat> that gets us to our verse. The necessity of the resurrection for God's ultimate victory. Verse 50. Let me just read this. Just this, hear it because it comes right into our verse now. Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is our current 
mortal, perishable condition can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, referring to Christ coming again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So you understand for Paul, resurrection equals transformation. That's when this happens, this great transformation. Then he says in verse 54, when this happens, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This final victory of God is the victory over death, the last enemy. Death will be swallowed up in victory. No more death. At this transformation. And why is this victory certain? Because of Christ. You see it? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're back to the gospel again. Jesus in his Death took the sting. That is the judgment of God. He took it. He absorbed it for us in his death. If you think of death as a sting, and that sting comes from sin and God's judgment, Christ took it. That's what his death was about. He bore our sin, the judgment for our sin, and he triumphed over it, and he gives us the victory. He's saying victory in Jesus. That's where it comes from. He gives us the victory through Christ, through faith. We are united to Christ and it is ours. Therefore, therefore, we're finally there. <clears throat> do, you, do you get this victory, this sin defeating triumph? This victory is ours. This transformation resurrection is ours. This glorious, imperishable, immortal future is ours. And it's ours with an absolute certainty in Christ. It's absolutely certain because Christ is risen. And listen, all of that is just a whisper away from you this morning. It's just, it's just a little bit away. This, this life is just like a vapor, just here and it's gone. But that reality is forever and it's really close. Therefore, don't give up. Be steadfast. Do you hear it? Do you hear the therefore? All that's behind that word, that transition. Therefore, in light of that, if that's true, and it is true, if that glorious future is yours, therefore, be steadfast, brethren. Be immovable. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. So let's just finish. Let's just think for a moment. Verse 58. We're back here now to that one verse. Just these practical effects of believing, of knowing that this is true. What are the practical effects here on this Easter morning? Here they are. Let me just give you a couple. 
They're right here in the text. Number one, remain faithful to the gospel. Remain faithful to the gospel. That is, be, be steadfast and immovable. Again, that's where Paul started. Remember back in verses 1 and 2 where he said, you've believed this, now hold fast. So it's not in vain. So this is true, so, so cling to it. Hold fast to what I preached. So remain Christian. Don't give up. Don't quit. Hold fast. When, when storms come, and they, they are going to come, when loss comes, when bitter disappointment comes, when doubts arise, Paul said, be, be like this rock. It just it doesn't move. I'm clinging to this gospel, to Jesus. I'm clinging to Christ. So if you're here this morning, and you, 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 just, you feel a drift in your heart. And you know if you do. Maybe it's been a while since you've been here with us or church in any sense. And you just you feel this drifting and your doubts are, are arising in your mind. And you're just becoming absorbed with everything else. And wondering, eh, do I believe this? Is it worth it? Oh, I plead with you. Remain. Hold fast to Christ this Easter. Cling to him. Fix your eyes on him because he's risen. This is our inheritance. This is true. This is our hope. It's nowhere else. So cling to him this morning. Again, maybe, maybe you have been hurt by the church, by other Christians. Maybe, maybe you've been deeply disappointed this gospel is still true. It's still true. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. So, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, he says, let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing, fix your eyes on Jesus. <laughs> the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy, that resurrection joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus on this Easter. And if you're here in... Maybe you've never embraced Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. I want to encourage you to do so today. Believe on the Lord Jesus. If he is risen, then he is Lord. And he's holding out to you this morning this promise of the forgiveness of sins, this certain hope of resurrection. There's, there's no hope outside of him. He's the only risen Savior. So he holds it out to you. If you've never embraced him by faith, maybe, maybe you even think 
these things might be true, I just encourage you to embrace Christ. I would, I would say with confidence this morning, based on the Bible, that that's what you're made for. You, as a human being, were made in the very image of God. You know that? You're made in the image of God to reflect God. But because of our sin, our rebellion, we have been estranged from God. That relationship to God is severed. And that we find ourselves under his judgment. But here the promise in Christ is to be remade in the very image of the Son, of Jesus. That's the whole culmination of the plan. That's our future. So, oh, I invite you, if you've never embraced him, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise. Is that you? Christ has accomplished it. If you're outside of Christ, your life might be filled with lots of achievements, lots of joys even, lots of pleasures, lots of accomplishments. But ultimately, it would be vain. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul, lose this future? So, Christian, hold fast to Christ on this Easter. And if you're not a Christian, oh, I encourage you, put your faith in Christ. Here's the second practical effect. Give yourself constantly to the service of Christ in all of life. Give yourself constantly. So he says, not just be steadfast and immovable, but always abounding in the work of the Lord. <laughs> always abounding. What does that mean? It means do a lot of that, right? Engage Yourself with this work of the Lord. Be abounding in it. <laughs> That's what he says. Fill your days with the things that count for Christ. With the things that really matter. What does he mean? The work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. He's calling that to all of us. Not just to pastors or missionaries, but to Christians, all of us. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, what is that? Well, it certainly would include gospel ministry. Paul engages in, in this gospel and gospel proclamation, yes. Oh, I say to our international workers who have it hard at times, who face so many difficulties and give up so much and often see almost no fruit or they see it seemingly destroyed, Abound in this work. It's worth it. It's not in vain. So yes, it would include that kind of gospel ministry, but also just serving one another. As believers, we serve in all kinds of ways. We abound in this work as believers and Christians. Are you abounding? Really, it's all that we do that is specifically Christian. So it doesn't have to be just formal ministry that could be that, but even at your work, do you work as unto the Lord? Do you see that as part of this work of the Lord, even your employment, raising children? Do you see that as part of this work of the Lord? All that you engage in, abound in it for Christ's sake, whatever it is. So I just ask you on this Easter, are you, are you abounding in the work of the Lord?
Because Paul says, if you believe in the resurrection, you believe it's true. That's, that's what the effect should be. You should be abounding in this. Or are you abounding in a lot of other things? Distracted by just a thousand other amusements. I'll ask it this way. I like to ask this question on Easter to my own self and all of us. What is it about your life that can only be explained by your belief in the resurrection of Jesus? Ask yourself, what is it about my life whose only explanation could be because I believe Jesus is risen? That could be how you spend your time, your money, your service, your retirement. Does it look any different than your neighbor who doesn't believe in the risen Christ? Are you abounding in this work? Oh, abound in it. Just think of Paul, who's writing this, his own example. Now, we're not the Apostle Paul, I understand. He had a unique ministry. But Paul said that his whole life would be absurd (laughs) if Christ isn't risen. If you look at Paul, what he did, and Christ isn't risen, you say, that's just absurd. That's a fool. You're just wasting your life, Paul. That's what he said. He said, if Christ isn't risen, we are of all people most to be pitied. Just glance back at chapter 15, verse 32. I didn't read this. He, he said it this way. If from, this is verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> Paul took risks for the gospel, fought with wild beasts, whatever that means, at Ephesus. Why would I do that if Christ isn't risen? If Christ isn't risen, let's just, let's just get as much pleasure out of this life as we can because we just eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Just give yourself to mundane things. But Christ is risen. So abound in the work of the Lord. Give yourself to it, even sacrificially. Why? Here's the third, last thing. No. That your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So this is where I started. I want to end here. This is Paul's encouragement. Do you see it? If you just look at that verse again. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil. You can be abounding because you know, you know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you know that this morning? It can feel very different. Do you know it's not in vain in the Lord? Why isn't it in vain? Because of everything he's just said. Again, we're back to the beginning, the resurrection. That's why Paul's grounding it. The reason I know it's not in vain is because of the resurrection. So let me end with this just resurrection hope as it specifically relates to a just abounding in this work and knowing that it's not in vain. How, do we, how does the resurrection tell us this is not vain? Just these two things, two related things. Sacrificial service for Christ will be rewarded in the resurrection. 
with the resurrection sense. Sacrificial service for Christ. This abounding in the work of the Lord, this labor, will be rewarded in the resurrection. Nothing, nothing will be lost. Now again, let me be very clear and careful. When I say rewarded, I don't mean we somehow earn or merit this resurrected life. We don't. It is a free gift of God's grace through faith in Christ alone. You don't merit, you don't work for it. But the Bible speaks often and everywhere about rewards. Rewards. Paul even says that here in this book of Corinthians. He's spoken of those very things of his own ministry. Back in chapter 3, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So it's not the one who plants, nor the one who waters, but God causes to grow. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He speaks of this reward, it's coming, that it will be evident on that day that nothing will be overlooked, nothing will be lost. Each man's praise will come from God. He even says in chapter 4, don't pass judgment right now. Don't go on passing judgment right now. Wait for that day. And there will be reward. Nothing will be lost. Bruce Milne, author, New Testament scholar, writes it like this, quote, every kingdom work, just listen, every kingdom work whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes of the kingdom's imperishable character. Every honest intention, every stumbling word of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything literally which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order which will dawn at his coming. That's why it's not in vain. Nothing will be lost. Last thing, sacrificial loss for Christ will be abundantly repaid in the resurrection. Sacrificial service will be rewarded and sacrificial loss for Christ will be abundantly repaid in the resurrection. Know that? Again, so that we lose out, we miss out on nothing. Peter asked Jesus this, Peter the apostle. He said, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that's the resurrection, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious thrones, you shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Nothing will be lost. It will be abundantly repaid. It's the language Jesus used. He, he told us, if you want to invite people for dinner, invite those over who can't repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection. That's Luke 14. Jesus said that. This right compensation. So nothing is lost. That's why it's not in vain. There's this reward in the resurrection, and there's this recompense 
for all that's lost. Understanding the nature of the resurrection and our eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, we don't ultimately lose out on anything. It will be a thousand times better and more enjoyable in the resurrection. So, if you suffer from disability and miss out on a lot, it feels like, or illness, or you've lost a loved one too early, you won't ultimately miss out on anything because the resurrection is real. It's real. And it's abundantly better. This life is just a vapor. That's why Christians, we don't need a bucket list. <laughs> you know, bucket list, you know, when you kick the bucket, things you want to do before you kick the bucket, right? There's nothing wrong with planning and wanting to do things. I like to do that too, but we don't need that ultimately. We're not missing anything. Randy Alcorn, author, says we should have a post-bucket list. Like, in the resurrection, what am I going to do? That's a good way to think. Is this your hope this morning? Do you know that Christ is risen and this future is secure and what it will be like? So, brothers and sisters... Knowing this, knowing Christ is risen, knowing our future is secure, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll sing to close our service. Oh, Father, speak this word to our hearts and minds this morning. And flood us with this unshakable hope. May we know, really know, these things are true and real. And I just pray if there are any that just aren't trusting, even this morning, in Christ. Maybe wondering, Lord, would you draw them now to faith in Christ, to see these realities, to find their life, their hope, their forgiveness, their reconciliation in Jesus. What is our hope in life and death? It's Christ alone, and it's to him we cling. We bless you in his name. Amen.